Hello and welcome, this is Verity. We are here today for our second episode in the Global Sport Conversation podcast series, a collaborative project between the Centre for International Studies and Diplomacy, the Japan Research Centre and the Centre for Media and Film Studies and SOAS Radio, all proudly funded by the Research and Enterprise Office Seed Corn Initiative. The purpose of this podcast series is to explore with industry and academic experts the role sport has played in their lives and professional practices. It is an exciting opportunity for a variety of voices and multiple interpretations of the leading question, where does sport fit? I'm pleased to say that I'm joined today by two wonderful people, Dr. J. Simon Rofe, who works here at SOAS, and a colleague from further afield, Dr. Lindsay Sarah Krasnoff. Uh, Simon, can I bring you in immediately to explain what you do? Thank you very much for that welcome, Verity. Um, so my name's Simon, and I work in the Centre for International Studies and Diplomacy, where I'm a reader in International Studies and Diplomacy. Um, I'm also the academic head of online learning, and I teach the course called Sport and Diplomacy More Than a Game here at SOAS. Wonderful. And Lindsay? Hi, thank you for having me here, Verity. Um my name is Lindsay, and I am a research associate here um, with uh, SOAS this year. And I'm a historian, writer, and consultant based in New York, working at the intersection of global communications, sport, and diplomacy. Fabulous. Well, hopefully our audience can hear from your job titles and your professional and maybe as we'll get onto uh, your personal interests, you're both heavily invested in sport. Um, Lindsay, we'll come to you first. When and where did you first start to um, see sport really come into your professional life? When I was still doing my graduate training, I was training uh, both as a sports journalist and in French studies and had to really bridge the gap between sports and some kind of international sports and media and journalism. And for me, that was French football to begin with. And so carrying that forward, my my focus professionally on sport has both intensified in terms of when you work for the PhD, it becomes very niche in many ways, yet also more diversified in terms of broadening out to look more at the global uh, scope and scale of sport. When I worked for the U.S. Department of State as a historian for several years, my official brief did not have anything to do with sport. Uh, However, it did fit in with lots of the public diplomacy programs that were going on within and without the side of the department. And I found ways to bring uh, global sports knowledge to diplomats and ambassadors uh, so that they could uh, broaden their programming offerings and really start to uh, make much more broad use of this concept of sport as diplomacy and outreach to bridge cultural gaps. That's really interesting. And I believe um, that's what brought you initially to SOAS in 2015, um, unless yes. you came here before, but you no. attended <laughs> attended a symposium, um, which me and Simon were both in attendance of. Um, and that was with the, the project that you were on in the US at the time. That was, yes, part of the initial sports and diplomacy conference. And that uh, for that, I was focusing on the informal role of athletes as ambassadors and kind of these cultural beacons of sports in their own rights, looking at the 
young American who organized the first trips by a French national basketball team to the United States. And so how his desire to share his homeland and its culture and its basketball culture mm. with his new friends in France really helped to start an evolution or a revolution in French basketball. Interesting. That, like you said, that does cover academically a number of different disciplines. It brings <laughs> yes. in, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's both the joy and the trickiness of being in and around this exactly. nexus. Exactly. And, you know, the sport and diplomacy uh, is provides a lot of very rich conversations that oftentimes move outside of the initial scope from where you begin. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in my work with basketball, um, it bridges uh, transatlantic relations, the U.S.-French uh, relationship, but also the relationship of these actors with their neighbors. It bridges, you know, pure sport history and how that um, how that has evolved in different parts of the field. It also brings in a lot of issues related to race and identity, immigration, but also migration. Mm -hmm. And one of the really interesting parts about this area of sport and diplomacy that I've been working on is that a lot of the things that we see today occurring in the NBA, for example, um, or in the professional leagues here in Europe, are very much a result of these cultural infusions or cultural transfers of knowledge and that you get from players just interacting with each other, interacting with fans or publics when they play abroad, whether as part of a national team, as part of a professional team, as part of a very informal sports exchange. And so we, we really start to see the power of that people-to-people -people diplomacy. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, especially because in our the first podcast for the Global Sport Conversation, we spoke with Aziade from the United Nations. Mm. And as, as her Perception Change project, she spoke very eloquently about, um, specifically in the football realms, how international footballers became, Organic, yes. both organically they became ambassadors, but also um, now with quite developed mechanisms, such as the Match for Solidarity mm -hmm. um, that she was promoting. Um, it Precisely what you've just described, that that um, development and evolution or revolution of relationships. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating. Um, Simon, you were fortunate enough to host all of these wonderful voices back in 2015. So where's sport come into your professional career? Thank you, Verity. Yeah, I mean, 2015 was the first major event. We had hosted a smaller event in 2012 um, here at SOAS, looking at bringing together um, sport and diplomacy and perhaps not such a perhaps not nuanced way at that point, but in the aftermath of the London Games, um, it seemed an obvious thing to do in developing primarily, actually, as a, uh, as a resource for developing the module that we teach here at SOAS on sport and diplomacy. And then as that played out over the next couple of years, bringing it back to the 2015 event, which Lindsay and yourself, along with others, was you know um, kind enough to attend. And from there, we had a number of sort of outputs, firstly academic journal outputs, but also really started to cultivate a network um, to tap into other uh, colleagues around the world who really, you know, prior to 2012, there was really no visible evidence of sport and diplomacy literature, uh, both in academia and actually more broadly, there was plenty of sport history and plenty of uh, the uh, relationship between sport and sociology or sport and politics, but very little about the differentiation between sport and uh, diplomacy from those other academic perspectives. And this is really where, you know, my thinking developed along the sport and diplomacy nexus. 
and the, but the intersection of those two realms. And you know, for for a visual metaphor, the overlapping of the Venn diagram circles, where those two, where that space exists, where there are common uh, approaches, common thoughts, often not necessarily conscious and perhaps unsaid up to this point, but trying to capture that and conceptualise it, which the work that um, other uh, colleagues have done, Stuart Murray, for example, who we brought into and has been part of the conversation, in fact, from the outset. But having that as really the crux of the matter, being able to establish the parameters of a discourse so that people can have a space to disagree with each other, but also to you know provide... Um, something of a safe space to have those disagreements in relation to other academic and indeed um, uh, discussions that are, are ongoing. And that's when actually talking about the recognition of a field, despite whatever the academic um, um, you know, structure that um, is around it, that's really what a sport and diplomacy has come to be you know, an important part of my individual research, but also I think part of a broader discourse across um, the the academic world and indeed why it's possibly one of the the most attractive things about it is its accessibility because it just gives people the opportunity to start a conversation and that has brought in many different interdisciplinary perspectives so in terms of those outputs that we've done from the 2015 event in the academic journal but also the book that's forthcoming on that front is actually bringing together historians political scientists sociologists and other um, you know, academic perspectives and people who self-identify as interdisciplinary. And that's actually really something that doesn't happen regularly um, as a matter of course amongst you know, academic colleagues and indeed bringing in the practitioner point of view too. So this is not something that's just you know, academics within the ivory tower, but actually seeks to engage in a way that practitioners want to be engaged with, not in the way that academics necessarily want to engage themselves but actually recognizing where you can draw in you know relevant evidence for putting into an academic paper but also contribute to the the discourse that um or the conversation the policy making the practice that uh, diplomats of all sorts mm. and not necessarily just the traditionally accredited ones yeah. are making in the world of sport yeah and i think that's one thing i admired as someone who was studying their masters um when we attended well we were all at the event in 2015 um was the variety of voices and that not just in the traditional sense of academic academic and practitioner but the variety of nationality the variety of age the variety of um and diversity of um gender and um to an extent disability it, it struck me coming from different institutions that it was a very diverse diverse environment um, but as often the case with research projects there's always the criticism that these little bubbles or little interdisciplinary groups are in an echo chamber and you know saying similar things and Simon and Lindsay to an extent you both mentioned that you wanted to challenge varying vectors so the new exciting chapter of this sport diplomacy and governance hub who's going to benefit well, I'll kick off with that. I think the opportunity to benefit from this conversation isn't um, is not something we want to predefine at the outset, but to provide sort of indicators. We've got policy operatives within the recognised um, structures of government. Now, that's perhaps the most obvious and um, some sense the most challenging, but also the most obvious way you can see the impact of um, you know academic research. That. Sort of the next um, stakeholder, as it were, or you know, potential beneficiary, I'd see as the um, 
those who operate within the sort of governance structures of sport, who are they? How are they going to consider things that go beyond just perhaps an immediate individual sport or an immediate individual event of sport? And the, that might be a, a large uh, event, you know, sporting mega event like an Olympics or um, a multi-sport uh, event like uh, the Commonwealth Games that we just experienced uh, down in uh, on the Gold Coast. But the way that sporting bodies are what um, Alan Tomlinson calls the sporting uh, international non-governmental organisation, the Thingos, thinking about how they are um, part of the, the conversation because, you know, they are in themselves just the experts in their sport and in the way that they're uh, interoperating with be it, you know, media and other partners. And it's really that networked approach, I think, that um, the sporting bodies, be they on a national or international level, can benefit from. I think the beneficiaries are not just restricted to the organisational level, but also to individuals and indeed um, groups of uh, individuals. So the people-to-people conversations that uh, Lindsay mentioned, but also those that, you know, the groups that identify with and through sport, how they are potentially beneficiaries or indeed and, and that's not to say that there's a uh, sort of immediate sort of economic benefit but they're just informed by that's how i would see the sort of monitoring and evaluation of this success or benefit rather than just in terms of you know it'd be difficult to put a sort of economic um vector on it but that i think you know sort of three groups that i'd start with and indeed there will be others but i think part of the process here is to recognize that there's an ongoing evolution to this conversation there's no way i would have thought that we'd be having people uh, from a sport and recreation alliance for example as part of this conversation when we met here in 2015 but they you know they're now very much part of the conversation and you know we're continuing to learn and reflect on their practice and i would add uh, two other groups to that first uh, certainly the athlete ambassadors um, who are going out and helping to disseminate and bridge cultures through sport and have for decades uh, since uh, modern sport really began, but uh, particularly those who are finding their voices in new ways, given the evolution of media platforms and channels, who are now starting to think about their own role in uh, sports as kind of a a diplomatic uh, outreach, whether in a formal or informal sense, and thinking about not just their own roles, but also how they can share those roles and to help explain what it is that they've seen. You know, thinking back to, say, periods in the Cold War, oftentimes it was athletes who were able to go to places where publics of certain nations were unable to go. And so they were kind of at the forefront of a window in, as it were, mm-hmm. into some of these uh, different countries. So athlete and athletes as ambassadors is one other group that I would identify, and you know, this can be a resource to help them uh, with that, and also the media. Mm-hmm. Certainly, um, there's increased interest in and coverage of sport within governance and within diplomacy, not just in the United States, but in Europe and all around the world. And I don't think that's a trend that's going to uh, tail off anytime soon. But what's important, I think, for the media to get out of this is to have context, to have resources, and to have access, so that they're not operating in in a you know without any sort of um, context to them. Um, and I think that's what 
makes many media outlets or editors or journalists uh, rather excited about the concept of sports and diplomacy. Can I just pick up on one thing that, uh, that Lindsay mentioned there about the athlete ambassadors and really the opportunity there for them building a learning community of themselves and self-identifying and being prepared to listen to both the practitioners of their own sport and their own environment, but also take on board some of the perspectives that you know we would hope to offer as uh, um, as sort of contributors to the discussion, but also by networking them with other actors in the conversation so that it's not just a bilateral conversation but a multilateralized one at each point because I think that's where you talked about uh, or the opportunity the media have. That's another uh, you know, vector where the conversation is not bilateral but there's an interactive mm-hmm. element and athletes have you know, to varying degrees and to the degree that they are comfortable and indeed want to do it. And they may be doing it for reasons other than, you know, um, sort of uh, global peace, uh, for example. But actually, there's an opportunity for them to influence the conversation. And that's really part of, you know, why they are an important uh, stakeholder above and beyond any particular, you know, and or inspiring sporting talent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think all those points give a real flavor to just how broad and arguably deep you can go in with the extent that sport and diplomacy can reach Um, and I think that people listening to this would hopefully see that um, although there are differences there is an argument made that is globally reaching do you think that it's globally reaching in an equitable way at the moment so for example if we take sport ambassadors would athletes from most nations be well equipped to be ambassadors or are we speaking about a particular international community or are there hard to reach groups? I think part of that gets to your definition of athlete ambassador. Traditionally, they've been you know, construed as being uh, the elite athletes who represent nations um, in international competitions, but not always, right? How do you label the, do you give the same label to the athletes who do these informal exchanges, who do mentoring programs um, internationally? Um, so I think part of part of your question really gets at how, how you, what the definition is. I take a very, personally, I take a very broad view of that. Um, and I think that many of them are going to be well equipped for this. I think many of them uh, have a very profound interest in this sort of thing. Um, but there will certainly be, I think, some resource issues. It's almost bridging towards um, a global citizen to an extent. Right, exactly. And, and certainly in the UK context, in a post-Brexit climate, uh, we're certainly encouraging all of our citizens to look beyond our European community. So it's, it's a very interesting point you make. Um, Simon, do you have anything else to offer on that, especially on a definitional level? Yeah, I mean, I think it comes back to what we understand by global diplomacy. And here I'd you know, revert to you know, what I might think is sort of familiar ground for me, but thinking about diplomacy as representation, communication and negotiation. And if you've got those three things together, then you're engaged in the diplomatic practice. And that, therefore, it's not restricted to, um, you know, white men in, you know, uh, pointy hats with, you know, long official titles. Actually, anyone can be a diplomat. And I think those that function of diplomacy uh, really, you know, can be manifest on the football field, on the running track, 
anywhere where there's a community of interest. And because you're representing quite literally in some senses a national context by wearing a national shirt or a national vest or in some senses carrying a national flag, you actually have a very clear identification as a um, ambassador for something. You are representing something. And that's where you know there's a message to be conveyed. Definitely. And it flags again something that Aziade mentioned in the first podcast is that it's so easy to communicate globally in the current moment. And there's a lot to be said. She used the term, you know, that currency of language. And I think that we're into quite an exciting realm of where we can push and stretch global diplomacy and hopefully sport and governance in and amongst all of that. Uh, thank you so much, um, Simon and Lindsay. That was absolutely wonderful. Um, good luck with your events on Wednesday and Lindsay, the rest of your uh, stay with us here at SOAS in London this week. Um, that wraps up our second podcast on the Global Sport Conversation series. We have more coming out very soon and ongoing public events around sport diplomacy and governance. Check out the SOAS events page for more details or tweet me at verity underscore pos. Have a great rest of your day. Stay active and stay conversing.